You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Avram Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. A little over two years ago, Bob Goodman, who is a retired public defender from Illinois, and I had a discussion on a program that we called Stir With Love Criminal Justice Reform Show. The show has sort of been in hibernation as we are restructuring our platform. However, the discussion that we had took on new relevance two days ago when a jury found Jennifer Crumpley, who was the mother of Ethan, a school shooter in Oxford, Michigan, guilty on four counts of manslaughter for recklessly allowing her son access to a rifle and also not heeding the warnings of the school and not taking proper precautions that the jury found could have prevented the death of four students and injuring seven others. This is a landmark case, blaming the parents as well as the shooter. Um, the reverberations will be felt perhaps for years to come as the system needs to be looked at. Well, when the parents were charged, Bob Goodman and I sat down to talk about what this means. And we even gave it somewhat of a, of a spin based on Torah and other sources. It was a nice conversation, and I think it was one that was respectful, and it was one where both of us, I think, learned from each other, me mostly learning from him. So I'm representing it here, especially in light of the conviction. There is, of course, going to be another trial for her husband on pretty much the same charges. Um, the trial got a little bit lurid uh, with details of her personal behavior and how much that impacted her as a human being and being able to care for her kids. It really is, I think, a story uh, that can resonate and give us pause about how the justice system works, but also about the limits of what we can and can't do in terms of teaching and inspiring our children. So here it is again, a re-release special. I hope you enjoy it. I'm here with a uh, retired public defender, Bob Goodman, who has, of course, been with us a number of times. And Bob, we're here today to discuss a case that has achieved um, a large amount of notoriety perhaps even internationally, definitely here in the United States. Um, it is the case of the, <laughs> the shooting that occurred on November 30th in Oxford, Michigan, a shooting that in some ways sounds terribly familiar. Fortunately, with the spate of shootings that have, uh, have since Columbine and beyond, we almost sort of expect one to happen. It's a terrible thing to say that you expect these things to happen, but they have occurred in a tremendous frequency that is so disturbing. But it's not the um, those facts of the shooting itself, which are definitely grim and horrible, but what it makes this case so interesting to you, I know, is the way that the prosecution of this case seems to be proceeding. It is, in, in a way, a novel and different, uh, and 
It is it sets a a, a a trend possibly in ways that make uh, coming up with definitions very important. I think that not only is this an interesting case to discuss on any sort of you know legal program, and but I think it might have ramifications specifically an impact on the criminal justice reform movement. And it might, in a way, be something that we can talk about. Hi, and hello, everyone. What I'm about to relate to you of the Michigan high school shooting case is very detailed, but I think it's worth following because this is ultimately a fascinating case. And it was, in my opinion, a preventable tragedy. Ethan Crumbly was 15 years old when he shot and killed four classmates and wounded seven at Oxford High School in a suburb of Detroit on November 30th of this year. He used a nine millimeter Sig Sawyer semi-automatic handgun that his father, James Crumbly, bought for him four days earlier as a Christmas present. It was the deadliest shooting at a U.S. K through 12 campus since May of 2018. Ethan will be tried as an adult and faces up to life in prison on numerous counts of murder and terrorism. He has been denied bail and sits in jail as we speak. The day before the shootings, November 29th, a teacher caught Ethan looking at photos of ammunition on his cell phone during class. This prompted a meeting with counselors and other staff members and the defendant, Ethan. The parents were not present because they could not be reached by phone or text till the next day. At this meeting, Ethan let on that he and his mother had gone to the shooting range for practice recently. When a school official reached the mother, Jennifer Crumbly, the next day and told her about the cell phone ammunition search by her son, the mother texted Ethan and messaged, LOL, I'm not mad at you. You have to learn not to get caught. On the morning of the shooting, a teacher alerted school officials about drawings and written statements of Ethan that she had discovered. One of the drawings was of a gun accompanied with the words, The thoughts won't stop. Help me. Another drawing was of a bullet with the words blood everywhere written near it. A third drawing was of a person who had been shot twice and bleeding with the words, my life is useless and the world is dead. The parents attended the meeting with school counselors on the morning of the shootings and everything was laid out before them. Ethan stated that the drawings were for a video game that he was designing. The school counselors advised the parents to take Ethan home and seek counseling within 48 hours. The parents flatly refused to take Ethan home. No explanation was given for this refusal. Subsequently, The counselors determined that Ethan was not a danger to himself or others because he had no prior disciplinary problems. 
Ethan was allowed to go back to class, which he did, the parents left the school and went to work. The counselors did not inform the principal or the assistant principal about the situation, nor did they call the authorities. The parents did not tell the counselors about the gun they had just bought for their son, nor did anyone check defendant's backpack or locker. There is no reasonable doubt as to the defendant's guilt. A multitude of people saw Ethan mow down his fellow students with his nine millimeter in the hallway between classes after he emerged from the bathroom with his gun. When Ethan was arrested, he still had 18 unexpended rounds in his gun. The damage might have been far worse, but for the grace of God. Ethan Crumbly will receive justice in due time. The more interesting questions in this case surround the parents, James and Jennifer Crumbly. Are they responsible and culpable for the actions of their son, Ethan? Michigan prosecutor Karen McDonald thinks so. Citing their behavior as egregious, she charged both of them with four counts of involuntary manslaughter. They were given bonds of 500000 each and remain in Oakland County lockup with their son, Ethan. None of them have access to the other. All of them are on suicide watch. In Michigan, involuntary manslaughter carries up to 15 years in prison. It is exceptionally rare to charge and convict parents in this type of dispute. One difficulty in the Michigan case is, while the prosecutors determined that the parents allowed their 15-year-old son free access to the gun by keeping it stored in an unlocked drawer in the parents' bedroom, there are no safe gun storage laws in Michigan. One is not legally required to store one's gun safely. This is surely a stumbling block for the prosecution when they go to trial. On the other hand, at the meeting with the school counselors on the day of the shootings, the parents were made aware of the texts and the drawings and the worrisome written words of the defendant. Ignoring these red flags can be seen as aiding and abetting the final outcome. The parents did not try to determine where the gun was or even mention to the school officials that a gun was purchased for their son a few days earlier. Further, they did not follow the counselor's advice to take Ethan home and get help. The prosecution has alleged criminal culpability because of the parents' failure to act when warned of their son's disturbing behavior. The notion that the parents can read those words of Ethan while knowing their son has access to a gun and do nothing is both unconscionable and criminal, in my opinion. At trial, it is all but certain that the prosecution will use the parents' own words against them to incriminate them. As the shootings were in progress, Jennifer Crumbly texted her son, Ethan, and pleaded, don't do it. 
after the shootings, but before the shooter was identified, James Crumbly drove home, looked and failed to find the gun, called 911 and roared, the gun is missing. I think my son is the shooter. Clearly, both parents were on notice from their meeting with the school counselors that their son was dangerous and their silence was deafening and damning. After the shooting, the authorities issued arrest warrants for both parents and spent hours looking for them when they failed to show up in court on Friday for their arraignment. There is ample reason to believe that James and Jennifer Crumbly were trying to avoid the authorities and flee. The couple withdrew $4,000 from an ATM after charges were filed against them. The parents were ultimately located by police after a tip and arrested in an art warehouse somewhere in Detroit after the parents' car was spotted. Their attorney alleges that the couple intended to turn themselves in and only left town for their own safety. Fleeing the scene is no is known in the law as consciousness of guilt and can be used against the parents at the time of trial. From a legal point of view, the charges of involuntary manslaughter do not require intent to kill. They do require recklessness, gross negligence, or wanton and willful disregard to safety of others. Persons charged with involuntary manslaughter may have had no intention of killing anyone, but due to their careless and reckless action, caused the death of one or more persons. Prosecutor Karen McDonald believes the evidence in this case warrants conviction of the parents for involuntary manslaughter under these facts as applied to the laws of the state of Michigan. And I wholeheartedly agree. What about Oxford High School and or its officials involved in the investigation of Ethan Crumbly? What are the legal ramifications to them, if any? Do they face criminal culpability? I I highly doubt it. Do they face civil liability? I have absolutely no doubt of it. Watch closely for a wrongful death suit to be filed at any time. After all, the counselors were aware of the drawing of guns and bullets and people shot and bleeding. The counselors were cognizant of Ethan searching his cell phone for ammunition and that he was at a shooting range with his mother recently. The counselors were apprised of and read Ethan's pleas for help. Despite all this, the counselors made a judgment based on their professional training and clinical experience that Ethan Crumbly posed no danger to himself or others. After all, he had no prior disciplinary infractions. If the parents refused to take Ethan home, why make the poor boy stay in an empty house? Why not take the path of least resistance and send him back to class? 
which they did. Did the counselors ever consider calling the authorities, i.e. the police? Did they ever consider bringing the principal or assistant principal into the discussion? Did they ever consider searching Ethan's backpack and locker for weapons or other dangerous items, which Michigan laws give them the right to do? In other words, did the counselors take the threat seriously and did they take strong enough action given what they knew? Time will tell, but the answers seem obvious to me. These are the facts and the applicable law in the Michigan high school shooting case as far as I can comprehend it. As I stated earlier, this was a perfect storm and preventable tragedy, but for the careless and reckless actions of the school counselors and the parents of Ethan Crumbly. Both should be held accountable. The next court date is December 13th. Any questions, Rabbi? Bob, that was a, as usual, a very thorough explanation and concise and of laying down the essential facts of the case and a little bit of your own um, uh, sensibilities and understanding. And I appreciate it. And what I'm going to respond back to you in no way is is the difference between involuntary manslaughter and um, vehicular manslaughter, manslaughter um, uh, in in various ways, and the difference between that and second or third degree murder. Um, Judges routinely describe these differences. I will from what I was able to call while you were speaking, uh, there were two examples of, of involuntary manslaughter that have probably been have probably been prosecuted. One of them is about a doctor who is treating a patient for severe breathing problems. The problems are so intense that the patient needs to have a tube placed in their lungs to assist them with breathing. Um, he is trained to do this. That's the reason why he wears the white coat and people come to him and he has the, he has the degree. He fails, however, to ensure the tube's placement. Um, the air, instead of being delivered to the patient's lungs, is delivered to the patient's stomach and the patient dies. In such a case, this is considered a classic case of where the doctor caused her death by acting in a negligent manner and has committed voluntary manslaughter. The other case that uh, is being, is is, is mentioned, is a case where a um, carnival operator of a a ride, and the carnival operator, what he is supposed to do is strap everybody in. And he does not strap those persons in. Every passenger should be fastened and strapped in, and some aren't. And those that aren't die in, a, in that violent manner. The operator can be convicted of involuntary manslaughter. Now, Bob, I think you agree those are two classic examples, correct? Correct. Okay. So now here's the difference, I think, here. And it, um, in both of those cases, 
both the doctor, the carnival operator, they are actively, that's their job, strapping people in, looking at a patient, getting the tube ready, and then they, knowing that the activity they're involved in could kill someone. It's a very important activity, and that's their whole mind is to do this well, and that's what they've been placed there to do, and they don't do it. Something distracts them. They, in some ways, aren't really where they should should be, and, and, and therefore we cannot forgive them for that. Because when you take that responsibility to be in the field of battle, so to speak, where people are riding around in a, in a manner that could be violent, or people are exposed to a tube that could go in the wrong place, you better get it right. Crumbly's parents are really at home or at a job. Whether they know about you know, their, their child's tendencies or not, they definitely, as even the, the, they do not want this child to be involved in a violent act. They haven't encouraged it for him to go violent or be in a position around people where violence can occur. So I think that it's, it, it is different, and, I, and it, it seems like this is a new um, extension of involuntary manslaughter. And we know, Bob, that m- most of us are imperfect in many ways, and we regret things. But there's one thing to get a slap on the wrist. There's another thing to be hit with involuntary manslaughter and get 15 years in prison. So what would you respond to that? Here's how I would respond, Rabbi. I think you make an excellent point in distinguishing people who do things that are reckless uh, and negligent, like the examples you gave where the doctor put the tube in, in the wrong place. And the case that we have here, where it's more uh, that the parents failed to act. And I think that the defense in the case will be that they were under no obligation to act. They took no positive steps that helped Ethan Crumpley uh, do the shooting, and therefore uh, they are uh, not guilty of anything. And I think the prosecution's role uh, will be to say that, first of all, they there was some activity on their part in how they handled uh, the gun and whether they gave free access of the gun to the defendant. But the second issue is under these circumstances, with everything they knew from the meetings uh, with the counselor, did the parents have an obligation and duty to act by warning the school counselors of their son's dangerousness because he had potentially access to the gun. And when the parents uh, text something like, LOL, I'm not mad at you, you have to learn not to get caught, then I think that you can argue that that is in some ways actively encouraging their son to do something, but not to get caught. It's a very interesting argument. Either way, is their failure to act negligent and reckless. Okay. Well, I, I, I want to really unpack a couple of things from what you just said. Let's go with the last thing that you said, Bob. And you, you understand, I am not, I am not uh, to, uh, 
defending this person. I am looking at or the, the, the parents or Ethan. But the text of LOL, don't get caught. Um, in Michigan, like many states in the Midwest, parents and children go hunting. I think one of the things that we're going to talk about is the social media uh, page where I think Jennifer Crumbly talks about mother and son day of going to the shooting range. Um, looking for ammunition is obviously not necessarily an indicator that you're going to kill somebody. Looking for ammunition, the problem was this is something you're not supposed to do in school. This is in, uh, something that you shouldn't maybe even have your cell phone out in school. But if you do, it's a site that you shouldn't be on. Looking for ammunition isn't the same thing as a site where how to make a bomb that can uh, kill as many people as quickly as possible sites. And we know there are such sites as well. So LOL, this the, the kid is supposed to be a, a buttoned-down goody two shoes in school. He's not supposed to be looking on sites that have to do with ammunition, but that doesn't mean that this ammunition is going to be used in a violent manner against persons. That specific- May I say this about what you're saying? You can pick certain uh, texts. You can say looking for ammo is not dangerous in and of itself. But what I think you're missing or disregarding is that you have to look at the totality of the circumstances, not one thing in isolation. And when you look at the totality of everything that occurred, you it's more damning uh, to to the parents and to obviously you, you, defending themselves. Right, right, Bob. Whenever you look at the totality of things, then the details get blunted and sometimes mesh together. The, the, again, you, if, you're, if this is a linchpin, this text, that she, uh, as you say, is aware, all she's aware of, she's not encouraging violent behavior. She's, she is, I wouldn't want my kid checking out stuff in school that he shouldn't be doing. Ammo itself is really not, not the point. And I, I think this really leads to another I- issue, which I think has big ramifications in criminal justice, which is much of the prosecution's case, as was spelled out by Karen McDonald. I didn't read the complete transcript, but from what I did read, I saw that they used the glue that stuck the case together was the kids was Ethan's social media posts, the, the, the mother's Facebook posts. All of those have been put to sort of like tell the story because the facts themselves, like in other shootings, don't necessarily lead to the conclusion of, uh, of, 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 of involuntary manslaughter or uh, active uh, agency by the parents. It's those media texts that are really so crucial. Um, I want to ask you, I know that you have a, even though you're retired for a number of years, you have lived in the, in the, in in the, in the world where these social media posts and emails and other things have been used to, uh, to create a case against uh, people that are arrested and people have gone to prison for them. I just wonder that, as I as I once I told you in another conversation, that many posts don't necessarily represent a uh, like an eyewitness or as as I would say uh, a red light camera that can see what's going on inside of a vehicle. These represent 
sometimes the the fantasies or the what a person would want people to know they're doing they don't necessarily represent what actually happened or what is really the truth uh, for example in ethan's case one of the things that karen mcdonald mentioned in her arraignment for the parents was that ethan wrote this is my present this is my baby this is mine and therefore in an early christmas present this is a kid describing what he is seeing it doesn't necessarily mean that that is the that is the truth and therefore and that is being used his crowing of the fact that he has a gun as a present is therefore indicated that they're so happy that he has it and they want him to have it they're going to give him access to it it's based on a statement that he's making online and we know the kid is unstable rabbi to you um you make a a good point in the sense that social media texts postings are all being used in the modern world both as a defense uh and as uh, a tool of the prosecution i do not understand uh why you would object to that words have consequences they can lead to confessions and admissions in a criminal case and you get the evidence wherever it is supplied sometimes it's by live witnesses and sometimes uh it's circumstantial and again i refer to the totality of the circumstances take everything you know presented before the trier of fact either the judge or a jury and let they determine whether uh social media will play a role in uh in finding a person innocent or guilty but it's evidence just like ever any other evidence and i do not know uh, why you would object to it you seem to be implying that people aren't telling the truth they're exaggerating when they make statements on social media that's that's their problem their words have consequences and what they say makes a difference in in evidence Bob, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push back, and, I, and it's going to sound a little bit harsh. You know as well as I do that people uh, make statements, and they don't always mean what they say. And you probably don't use social media in this sort of ridiculous way, but that is the way it's used. And if, if, a, or if courts throughout the country are going to take social media posts and, and disregard any sense of privacy, because I guess you give up that right, you know, when people get a Twitter account, when people um, have Instagram, when people have Facebook, they probably sign away their right to privacy. We know, for example, um, uh, if you are taped without, uh, the, without your permission, or right, that type of thing is not admissible in evidence because you didn't know what was going on. Whereas Instagram and all these uh, social media posts a person supposedly knows that that's all part of the world and anybody has access to it. Correct. And that's why. Okay. But so I would say two things as again, to reiterate, one thing is we all 
flip that little I agree because we want to be able to talk to our friends who all are on Facebook and have that. We don't realize that that means it's no longer our private things that can't incriminate us. That's number one. Number two, Bob, uh, the defense attorneys and I think the jury and the judge need to know that these are not statements made under oath and they're not um, things that witnesses are attesting to. These are especially, you know, uh, things that people say. And therefore, if you are going to convict someone and take 15 years of their life, it better be beyond a reasonable doubt. I think that, uh, you know, you can only push the picture so much. Bob, let me let, let me go to one other thing here. And this is really why, you know, uh, it, it is such an interesting case. And in a way, it is a, uh, a pace setter and it is in a way uh, pioneering a new uh, approach, which is holding the adults responsible for these shootings. There have been school shootings before. There was a school shooting in Michigan in 2000, where um, a six-year-old boy uh, got a hold of uh, his father's gun and went to school and shot his uh, classmate, a little girl who died from the wounds. Um, In that case, the parent I think played, pleaded no contest and either had uh, you know, a two-year sentence that might have been uh, reduced. Um, uh, there might be other cases in Michigan um, that, that indicate that, but it is definitely uh, unique and different, this one. And I think there's a, 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 obviously, I think, a difference here. And it's a difference, Bob, if you'll allow me, that has uh, a parallel in our Talmudic world, which is when you allow a cheresh shotev a katan, I'm going to explain what that is. When you allow someone who is mentally um, deficient, either because they don't understand what's going on or because they uh, lack uh, the maturity to understand how important actions are, and you give them access, you actually hand them um, a, uh, a, a torch, and they then uh, set it a, a, a field ablaze, causing terrible damage. So the Talmud speaks about, the Mishnah speaks about, uh, whether you hold the person responsible or not. And there's a debate uh, as to the level of responsibility. However, if you give that to a, a person who is a mature person, uh, and then you know, the person's actions uh, continue, then, despite you know, we might be very upset at your at what you've done, you cannot be prosecuted. My point here, Bob, is using the Talmud and the Mishnah because listen, a rabbi has to think like a rabbi. Is that in the Flint, Michigan case, you let a child get a hold of this shiny thing? You're giving this, and you hold responsibility, Ethan. Again, and there'll be a debate there. I know that defense attorneys are going to say that Ethan broke into the uh, into the drawer, that the drawer was indeed locked, and that they didn't leave it open or indicate where it was. But I think, Bob, there is a difference between, and again, let me let me explain it better, because I want you to understand exactly what I mean. In the case of a of a of an incompetent person, a totally incompetent person, then it's almost like you are pushing that person to do it. In a case of a more competent person, despite that person being disturbed, that lessens 
your connection to it. It doesn't mean that you don't have to do penance. It doesn't mean that you aren't in some way one of the people that need to be uh, uh, fined and, 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 and be administered towards. But you aren't necessarily the person who is a partner in death to the deaths that occur. So I think that in that way, this is a groundbreaking case. In Michigan, the only case that I'm aware of where the parent was brought to uh, arraigned charges against them was where, of course, a kid doesn't know what he's doing and is going to shoot people. Here, there's, it, it, it is, uh, you're saying, Bob, well, you know your child was disturbed. You know that your child has murderous tendencies. You are saying that's similar to that six-year-old Flynn child that, of course, a kid is going to take a gun and get mad at his friend and shoot them. The parents, as, as, as they themselves in their text said, did not want that to happen. They, you, are, you, you need to really push this, Bob, to say you knew you had a murderous uh, a, a child who could be violent. Was there any incidents of violence in his life? That was, as you said before, Bob, the school officials did not have any records of violence against other students. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been sent back to class. And the parents could say, we're not taking him home. They would say, don't leave this room because your kid is going home. That didn't happen. And it didn't happen because there wasn't a history. You have to assume. Rabbi, if I may, uh, you've said a lot of things and let me address sure. a, a couple of them. First, you say this is a groundbreaking case uh, in that charging the parents is very unusual, which I agree to. And I uh, did uh, state that uh, myself in in my beginning uh, opening remarks. The fact that it's a groundbreaking case has no relationship to whether it should be brought or not. If uh, the prosecution believes uh, with this unique set of facts as applied to their law, if they think it's a worthwhile case to bring, so be it. I also want to uh, uh, state something else about what you said, which is you said the six-year-old who takes the gun, you know, the parents are somehow responsible because they were only six years old. But if the person is competent, like a 15-year-old Ethan Crumbly, then the parents would have no responsibility uh, for the, the actions that he took. My wife is a... a, uh, a Bob, Bob, I did not say that, Bob. I didn't say no response. I, didn't, I said it doesn't go into a definition of you were part of the deaths. You aren't Manslaughter means that you are one of the ingredients of death. I didn't say no responsibility. I said that that the difference between a 15-year sentence and a fine, a punishment, or something else. That's what I said. Go ahead. You're saying the degree of culpability of the parents is in debate. Yes. Should they go to jail for what they did, or should they just have a pat on the hand and say, be better parents next time? You know what? I don't don't buy that argument at all. I think that... uh, in law, when, when I was about to say, my, my wife's a psychologist. If a patient uh, that she is seeing uh, 
says, I'm going to go and do this crime or that crime, then she has an obligation to tell the authorities about that her patient is about to commit a crime. If she knows of uh, sexual or physical abuse going on in, in a patient of hers, she's a mandated reporter and has to say it. So there are times when people are obligated by the role that they take vis-a-vis the other person that they have to report uh, the circumstances to the proper authorities. Here you have parents. How much closer in relationship can you have between people than a parents to the son? And as I've told you before, they didn't intend that Ethan shoot and kill other people's. But by their reckless and careless actions of not uh, telling the school counselors about the gun, given the drawings and the words that Ethan had, then I believe their conduct rises to a criminal level of culpability through their gross negligence and recklessness. Now, I think that there is a good defense that they weren't obligated to do anything, no matter what they knew. That will be the defense argument. And the prosecution will say, given everything they knew, they did have an obligation to do something. And if they did, this tragedy would have been averted. And so I basically disagree with you and say that the parents are culpable because they had an obligation to act knowing the circumstances that they did. Yeah, well, again, I think that's really the, the question about, you know, is the, um, I think that uh, this really gets into um, uh, Ethan and his parents. We know that Ethan is being charged with terrorism as well. Now, that was something that you left out uh, from your, your, your summer. At least I, I didn't hear that. And uh, it sounds pretty strange that he's charged with terrorism. Bob, both of us remember 9-11. Both of us have been uh, in places, whether it's in Israel or here, where we know what a terrorist act is. To call this an act of terrorism, I think, uh, indicates something here. Um, Do you agree that you think this is terrorism, Bob? I did state in my opening remarks that Ethan Crumbly was charged with both murder and terrorism. I do believe, as I think you do, that the terrorism charge is a stretch for the prosecutor, um, Karen McDonald. I think any criminal act terrorizes the victim. Right, Bob, but but the ism is the point. Uh, A person is drunk in a car and he, which is vehicular manslaughter, and and we know that juries are don't like always convicting in such a way because of what happens in such cases. But uh, a person is driving through the streets, and in, everybody's running around in terror. And I'm sure the terror is probably an understatement of what was going on in throughout that school, and maybe in every school in the area. But he is not a person committed to a cause, and his purpose is not to create terror. His purpose is not to create fear and to bring uh, a civilization down or or because he has fealty to a certain idea. So what that shows me, Bob, is that they are looking at this case as not only groundbreaking, but a case to perhaps fight against 
um, these school shootings and against you know the NRA's um, defense of the Second Amendment, and they are trying to stack it on. And I, I wonder, because of that, and because of the, the media attention that's going to be connected to this case, whether a jury is going to be able to look just at the facts here. It's, this case is going to be, is going to be um, uh, modeled and it's going to be presented as a referendum on, um, on, on, on how we need to uh, address gun control issues in the country. And, you know, again, otherwise, you know, other defendants in the future who find themselves made an example of in these type of cases. And now there's so much being thrown at them that it's not like it's not typical. And I think that I I think justice isn't served when the case is being used to send the lesson for the generations to come. I agree with you. Uh, about the terrorism charge. I think that prosecutors have a tendency to what we would call overcharge and throw out a lot of different kinds of charges, uh, hoping that something will stick. I I think that this was a mistake by the prosecution and they will be allowed to uh, drop or dismiss those charges before trial, if, if they choose to do so, and I would recommend if I was advising them to do just that. The fact that this case is a front of the prosecution is to deter others in the future. And I think that this case is about the second prong of the prosecution. And who are they trying to deter? Not the actual shooter. What they're trying to deter and tell the world is that parents have an obligation for gun safety and to keep guns from people who should not have access to it. In this case, you have a 15-year-old boy, Ethan Crumbly, and the parents allowed him access to this gun. And in the future, If this case represents a trend in order to have parents be more careful in their gun safety, then it will all have been worthwhile, in my opinion. Yeah, Bob, I I, want to, again, just play devil's advocate here. And I'm using the the words of Michael Barbaro in uh, his podcast, The Daily, when he was talking about this last week. And he says that what's the what's to stop prosecutors from charging parents if they bought liquor for their kids and their kids get into an accident because they're drunk and they kill people. In other words, the parents know that kids not only do they keep the liquor unlocked, they actually bought the liquor for them because, yeah, it's good for you. Yeah, you should get drunk once in a while. Or if their kid uses a hunting knife that they bought them specifically for hunting to stab someone to death, it seems that parents are going to be held responsible for more and more things that are in society. And I think that might be one of the arguments. Barbaro is right. That's why I think the defense is going to say how reckless these charges are. Um, Bob, I want to move to the uh, to the, your other point that you made about the school. Um, 
You know, I spoke to a psychologist earlier this week, and I said, what would you have done if you would have seen this note? And how would you have uh, analyzed it? And he, of course, he would have, he analyzed it in, in a way that saw it as obviously very dangerous and something that needed to be jumped on right away. I, I think that, that Bob, we, we uh, I think that, I think what maybe what this means is, is that metal detectors and uh, anti-gun legislation needs to be going hand in hand with more psychological um, screening of every kid in school. And that can be done. Uh, there is money, there is infrastructure, and it needs to be done better. Uh, Bob, you, you'll agree that the reason why they let the kid go when he said it was a video game is because probably there are plenty of other kids in, in that school district that also draw violent pictures. And we know that's what kids do. Why wasn't there better knowledge about Ethan? Maybe there needs to be better knowledge about every kid in school, even though it's going to take time and efforts. And I think that is something that um, people that might get lost. Yeah, there might be a, a, a civil case of wrongful death, but the same way there's going to be calls for stricter gun controls, there should also be stricter controls for psychological testing for students, especially in a situation in terms of uh, sensitivity to bullying and how people react. Bob, I, I mentioned to you before in a different conversation, we all put up with hours and hours of TSA screening, I think schools could also gain from that. And I don't know if you, you agree uh, to that, but I think that that is something that 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 uh, would would be a good uh, result from this case, if that's possible, right? Metal detectors, uh, psychological screening, there's many things you can do. However, I would say that in this particular case, um, I said that the school counselors will never be held culpable or or liable criminally, but there is absolutely no doubt in my mind uh, that they were incompetent and they should pay a price uh, civilly for not taking uh, more action uh, in the face of what they did know. Okay, Bob, look, I, I'm not a school counselor, but my feeling is, is that there needs to be, you know, many of them. There needs to be more uh, people involved. There needs to be better staff. There needs to be, again, every single kid that's part of a public school needs to have a psychological profile, and therefore the red flags need to be clearer. And I think that is going to prevent these type of incidents from occurring more than, you know, jumping on, um, you know, aggressive prosecution. Bob, I asked you a question the last time we did a show like this, and when you talked about the Rittenhouse case, and I asked you, uh, what would you, if you were being called uh, by the Rittenhouse family, um, would you take the case? And I think what you said was that it would be a dream case, that it would help, you know, again, you, you never were out for making money, but it was a way to get not only notoriety, but also to deal with something interesting. And you felt that it was something you would probably, um, you know, jump at the chance. I'm going to ask you the same question here. The Crumbly family reaches out to Bob Goodman to be their defense attorney. How, how would you respond? I would say uh, that you have to, dis- I am morally against what Kyle Rittenhouse did and what the parents did. And I would 
more likely take the Rittenhouse case because he did have a legitimate argument for self-defense. And that was borne out by the fact that uh, he won that case. But in the Crumbly case, I have to tell you, I'm nauseated by the parents' action and lack of action and how they handle everything, given the facts that we know. And I would have nothing to do with that case. And I'm going to cheer on uh, if uh, they wind up ultimately getting convicted, because I really believe they should. Yes, Bob, and I think, listen, I'm going to, of course, add my uh, voice to this, that these school shootings that we've somehow become emotionally immune to, um, obviously, there needs to be uh, uh, steps to eliminate them. Uh, They are senseless and so terrible. Uh, Young lives being snuffed out by other young, uh, disturbed, uh, monstrous persons who, who, who have developed into these monstrous personalities and the young lives and the trauma that is uh, that is set by um, the, the, uh, can you imagine being in a school bob we didn't grow up in such places right to us going to school was saying pledge allegiance and running around in recess today how many schools are going to be etched with the memory of uh, of, of terrible incidents that occurred at the school who knows how scarred these children are going to be for life let's hope that we can eliminate this blot from our society completely, but do it in a way that doesn't compromise the the, the rights of of our individuals and leads to a fairer, better system of criminal justice. Take care, Bob. Thanks again for uh, being with us here today, and we'll hopefully catch you again. Be- Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you liked what you heard. If you did. Please take a moment to share this or any of the many episodes available on our platform with friends in order to help grow our community. Until next time, shalom. Shalom.